Uh, my particular focus today will be eventually on the difficult verses B17, 3 to 5 DK, or as we should now say in Pedocles Physica 1, 234 to 6. I shall try to show that a better understanding of these verses and their immediate context is to be had by removing a number of misconceptions that have distorted interpretation of Empedocles more generally. These verses are, of course, notorious for having suggested to some interpreters that Empedocles posited a so-called double zoogony, with the first birth and death of mortal creatures occurring during a period of strife's increasing ascendancy, a second birth and death of mortal creatures occurring during a period of love's increasing ascendancy, and with the stages of creatures' evolution coming in reverse order in each phase of the cycle. I won't bother rehearsing at any length the criticisms that have been brought against the reversing cycle interpretation. They are well known to anyone familiar with literature. The general tenor of the alternative reading of the opening verses of B17 by critics of the reversing cycle interpretation is well captured by David Furley. The main theme, quote, the main theme, a double theme, is an assertion of Empedocles' response to Parmenides. When the elements, which are ungenerated, indestructible, and unchanging, form a compound, then that compound, a unity, can be said to come to be. When the compound splits up into its components again, a many, the compound can be said to die or pass away, and particular quantities of the elements can be said to come to be. Not the elements, but particular quantities of the elements. And continuing further, the generation of the one is the destruction of the many and vice versa, but generation and destruction in this sentence are convenient and customary locutions to be interpreted by the philosopher in terms of mingling and separation. End quote. While this is generally much more sensible than readings that find in these verses intimations of a, of a reversing cosmic cycle and a double zoogony, numerous problems remain. Hurley's account here is vague on the details of 17.3-5, um, though his account is certainly not alone in this. The ultimate reason for this continued lack of clarity, I shall suggest, is the prevailing presumption that Empedocles' physical theory was developed as a response to Parmenides. This presumption has tended to commit interpreters to the view that the Empedoclean elements are a plurality of Parmenidean entities and, as such, are, as Furley says, ungenerated, indestructible, and unchanging. It's precisely this view that has prevented interpreters from understanding what Empedocles is saying in these verses, for it has prevented them from acknowledging that Empedocles allows for the elements as well as their compounds to be generated and destroyed. The 20th century historical narrative regarding the principal arc of the development of pre-Socratic philosophy cast Empedocles as responding to a Parmenidean challenge to the incipient enterprise of natural philosophy by repudiating his absolute rejection of change while at the same time accepting a specifically Parmenidean prohibition against generation ex nihilo. Hurley, of course, took the more nuanced view that Empedocles accepts a Parmenidean stricture against a thing's coming to be from what is not that thing. Empedocles B11 and B12, however, and you know, I apologize for untranslated things on the handout, but I just wanted you to have uh, ready to hand some of the uh, text that I'll be referring to. Uh, Empedocles B11 and 12, however, are more straightforwardly understood as rejecting generation from and perishing into absolute nothingness. The perishing here is clearly the absolute destruction into nothingness, and the evident parallelism between generation and perishing in these fragments 
requires that the generation is similarly from nothingness. In B15, one sees an even clearer rejection of generation from nothing and destruction into nothing. In any case, like so many other historians, Hurley supposes that the critical attitude evident in fragments such as B8, B11, and B12 toward common assumptions about the possibility of generation and destruction derives from arguments advanced by Parmenides. Quoting Hurley, what caused such suspicion of the concepts of coming to be and perishing? The only argument against them surviving from an earlier time is that of Parmenides B8, 1 to 21, which reaches the conclusion, hence coming to be, Genesis is extinguished and perishing Lethros is unintelligible. There is no trace in the fragments of Empedocles of an original argument to this effect. In my text it says, emphasis mine, because I italicized that last sentence. There's no trace in the fragments of Empedocles of an original argument to this effect. Well, I want to say something about that in a moment. Nihil, a nihilo fit, of course, is not a specifically Parmenidean principle at all. Aristotle, in numerous places, correctly speaks of it as a principle endorsed by all earlier natural philosophers, while none of the mostly meager fragments of the earlier pre-Socratics, articulates the principle as clearly as Empedocles B12, these thinkers nevertheless all implicitly obey it, since in their systems everything else comes to be in one way or another from originative principles which did not themselves come to be from anything else. Parmenides' own cosmology clearly obeys the principle as well, although he too never explicitly articulates it. Parmenides never argues uh, I think that anything whatsoever, irrespective of its mode of being, must be unchanging as well, and he should not be saddled with this absurdity. The 20th century narrative that thus casts Empedocles' critical attitude towards mortal ordinary conceptions of generation and destruction as part of a response, uh, it, do, it does so by casting this as a response to a challenge Parmenides never actually made. Well, since I've said enough about this elsewhere, here I want to focus on Furley's claim that there's no trace in Empedocles of an original argument against coming to be and perishing. There is, in fact, good evidence in the fragments for the kind of reasoning that led him to reject generation from and destruction into absolute nothingness. This reasoning takes the form that is perhaps most typical of Empedocles, namely analogical reasoning from what is apparent to what is non-apparent. Familiar examples of analogical reasoning or Empedocles' appeal to the clepsydra to help understand the function of respiration, his appeal to the lantern to help understand the structure and operation of the eye, and his appeal to the painter's mixing of a limited number of colors to paint things of all colors to help understand how the mixture of just four elements can account for the generation of things with all manner of characters and qualities. I take it that these are instances of what he and B4 describes as the pistomata, or assurances, of his muse, thereby indicating that his audience will not merely be presented with hieratic utterances, but will be given reasons to believe what he tells them. Before turning to the reasons that lead him to reject ordinary views regarding generation and destruction, it will be instructive to focus for a moment on the pattern of Empedocles' analogical reasoning in the so-called hymn to love in Physica 1, 252 to 7. My apologies for breaking up on the first page of the handout a continuous stretch of text, but I've done so to articulate 
what, what, what are pretty clearly blocks of text. Yeah. Doing so will help us to see more clearly a similar pattern of reasoning leading to his denials of generation from and destruction into nothing. Although verse 257 has been regarded as a deliberate echo of Parmenides B852, signaling Empedocles' purported achievement in saving the phenomena from Parmenides' destructive logic, what Empedocles actually describes as ukapatelon, or undeceiving, is the specific claim that love operates in the larger cosmos, uh, the larger world, as a principle of harmony and unification, just as we find her doing in our own selves. Her behold you with your thought, and sit not with eyes bedazzled. She who is recognized as innate in mortal joints, and by her they think friendly thoughts and perform peaceable deeds, calling her by the name Joy and Aphrodite. Not any mortal man is aware of her whirling among them, but hear you the undeceiving order of my account. So mortals are credited with an awareness of love within their own joints, and as the cause of their loving thoughts and acts of conjoining, note the play on words in Arthrois and Arthmia. Uh, Empedocles signals, however, that mortals generally fail to recognize that love is the cause of attraction and mingling elsewhere, specifically in the diverse conjunctions of the elemental roots. That is to say, mortals have direct awareness of love's operation and effects in their own selves, but remain unaware that love operates similarly elsewhere, even though effects similar to the ones they experience are observable in the world beyond themselves. The instruction here that one is not deceived in inferring love's operation among the roots or elements relies upon the following inference pattern. Where a principle is known by direct awareness or observation to govern some local phenomena, this principle can be inferred or understood to govern similar phenomena elsewhere, even without direct awareness or observation of its doing so. Uh, Empedocles encourages us, or perhaps he is encouraged by his muse, to use his intellect to make the inferential leap from his proprioperceptive experience of love as the causal principle of attraction and conjoining to recognizing that she is the causal principle of such effects in the natural world more generally, particularly in the coming together of the elemental roots. Form the inferences analogical, where C operates as the causal principle of a set of phenomena P, and where some set of phenomena Q is relevantly similar to P, then C should be recognized as the causal principle of Q as well. Representing the inference pattern in, the, in these general terms helps one appreciate that a number of factors contribute to mortal's ignorance of love's function as the causal principle of mingling and interaction among the roots. The most important factor is the ability to identify other phenomena as relevantly similar to the local phenomena wherein one is directly aware of the principle's operation. The relevantly similar phenomena on which the muse or Empedocles focuses are the conjunctions and interactions of the elemental roots, of which mortals have only the vaguest notion insofar as they are aware of certain instances of such changes without recognizing them as in elemental interactions. They may know, for instance, how earth and water mix to make clay, and how this clay may be transformed into hardened earthenware when it is fired, but they have no awareness of this as an elemental interaction, for they're not aware of the identity of earth, water, and fire as elements. 
They are obliquely aware of the elements in the same way they are obliquely aware of love. They are aware of earth, water, and fire, and of love, but they are not aware of them as principles or elements. Phenomena of physical change with which they are familiar need to be minimally theorized in a certain way as the combinations and interactions of elemental components in order to be recognized as relevantly similar to the phenomena mortals experience within themselves and recognized as the effects of love. Mortals' failure to apprehend love's function as a causal principle of attraction and combination in the natural world is precisely the type of cognitive failure described in the portion of B2 on the handout. Mortals believe only what they have themselves experienced, which is in this case the operation and effect of love in their own persons. I'm not saying that this is what he's referring to in the fragment, but it's the type of thing. This experience, however, is only a small part of the domain of love's operation. Mortals might have been able to make the inferential leap to understanding that she functions in the grander order similarly to the way they have experienced her functioning within themselves, were it not for the fact that their senses are obstructed and their thoughts consequently blunted. That is to say, that they have proved unable to recognize the relevantly similar phenomena of attraction and unification in the natural world, even though such phenomena are in many cases readily observable by the senses. And thus they have been unable to complete the analogical reasoning by which they might have inferred that similar effects have a similar cause. They thus fail to understand that love operates not only in themselves but in the cosmos, and more importantly, that the same causal power operative in the cosmos of the natural world is operative in themselves. They fail, that they fail to appreciate that what they experience as the operation of love is an instance of a more general operation, that the same principles that govern the operation of the cosmos are operative in themselves, but they don't recognize that um, uh, important thing. They fail to recognize love as love, as they do in calling her instead by the names Joy and Aphrodite. Comparable analogical reasoning is, I think, at work in the fragments in which Empedocles articulates the principle that no thing comes from nothing or perishes into nothingness. The 11 provides as general an articulation of the principles as B12, but the specific criticism of mortals in B11, that their thoughts are not delicophonous, points to the personal experience which most other humans lack that has enabled Empedocles to intuit these general truths. The rendering of the Hapax Legomenon delicophonous by LSJ and KRS as far-reaching is probably preferable to the translation long-lasting in Brad Inwood's edition. The point of the criticism seems similar to the point one sees in B2, namely that mortals' understanding is circumscribed by their individual lifespans. Short-sighted and dull-witted mortals are to be contrasted with Pythagoras, who is for Empedocles the paragon of wisdom, a man exception exceptionally knowing who indeed possessed the greatest wealth of understanding, due to his ability to reach far into the past with his understanding, so that, quote, this is B129, easily could he see each of all the things there are, even unto ten and twenty human lifespans. Empedocles himself professes the same or similar ability when he declares that heretofore he has lived as a youth, and a maiden, a bush, a bird, and a fish. 
B117. His self-professed superior understanding, like that of Pythagoras, is based to a significant degree on this ability to transcend the limited perspective of a single lifespan, and thus to see what ordinary humans cannot, that they existed before being born, and will continue to exist after they die. A wise person, Empedocles says in B15, would not suppose that people exist only during the span of what they call life, or that before being compounded and after being dissolved, they are nothing. The thoughts of the truly wise person, such as Pythagoras or Empedocles, are dolichophrones in virtue of their ability to remember their past lives and thus to know directly through their own experience that they were not nothing before they began this present life and will not perish into nothingness at the end of this life any more than they did at the ends of their previous incarnations. From his awareness of his own previous lives, Empedocles thus has the basis for inferring in the first place that other brotoi or mortals, given their relevant similarity to himself, neither come from nothing at their births nor perish into nothingness at their deaths. And I might just allude or just, just mention at this point that I think we have something similar going on in the 20, which I put uh, here on the handout, and I told David at dinner yesterday, and that you know I agree with what he's already had to say about this. That this is an appeal to what mortals are aware of, what is manifest to them in their own personal experience. But I call attention to the last two lines of the fragment where there is a kind of generalization post altos. And this also applies to other creatures. So there's a step from what, what we personally experience, and then we extend it to uh, the others. There's a similar movement in the extension of the personal experience of uh, previous incarnations to the uh, uh, general uh, truth of, of metempsychosis. Now, Rosemary Wright, in her edition, assigns B11 and B15 to the Catharmoi on the grounds that, quote, their emphatic affirmation of continuous existence, and for men in particular of life and experience before birth and after death, suits the subject matter of the Catharmoi. Close quote. This isolation of B11 and B15 from other fragments such as B12 and B8 because of their overtones of metempsychosis is particularly unfortunate, I think, because it obscures the experiential basis for Empedocles' inference to the fully general principles. Given the similarity of other living things to himself and other humans, and given his own recollection of having himself existed in the forms of other species, Empedocles can infer that no living thing whatsoever comes from nothing at birth or perishes absolutely at death. When the roots or elements combine and emerge in the form of a human being, beast, plant, or bird, people mistakenly say it comes to be, and when its elements separate, they mistakenly call it death. This is B9. Here in B9, there is the same criticism of mortals for failing to recognize the truth of the Pythagorean doctrine, for now, with the rudiments of a physical explanation of the transformations involved in birth and death, the scope of the principle continues to expand until it applies in full generality to all things that come to be and pass away, 
These will include the elemental roots themselves, but we shall see that they also suffer what might be regarded as births and deaths of their own as they come together to form all manner of compounds and as they re-emerge with their own identities when those compounds are destroyed. Nothing is ever really born or really dies in Empedocles' system. Instead, these apparently absolute changes are merely the transformations of one thing into another and of previously existing things into new things. It's Empedocles' personal awareness of the truth of the Pythagorean doctrine of metempsychosis that furnishes the experiential basis for his inference that not only in the biological realm but in the natural world more generally, nothing is ever truly born but always pre-existed in some form, and likewise nothing perishes absolutely but will be reborn repeatedly in new forms. So much for my you know, effort to find some argument or some reasoning or line of thought in Empedocles leading to his rejection of generation uh, from nothing and destruction into nothing. Now it's important to note that Empedocles' commitment to the principle that nothing either comes to be from or passes away into nothingness does not entail that the things from which other things come to be and into which they pass away must themselves be immune to change. It's only the mistaken presumption that Empedocles means for his elemental roots to severally replicate the attributes of Parmenidean being that has driven interpreters to suppose that he means for the roots to be, in particular, ungenerated, indestructible, and unchanging. This mistaken presumption has in turn been understood to entail that the roots take the form of particles that retain their individuating qualities when they combine to form compounds. Thus, Furley casts Empedocles' element theory as an important forerunner of the physical theory of the early atomists. I've argued at length elsewhere to expose the flaws in the interpretations of both Parmenides and Empedocles on which this historical narrative rests. While it's obviously impossible to rehearse the details of that complex argument here, I do want to call attention once again to how Empedocles' own words, as well as the most important voices in the doxography, strongly suggest that fire, water, earth, and air have life cycles of their own and undergo their own births and deaths as they successively unite to form other entities, re-emerge from those entities when they perish, unite in other ways in new entities, and so on similarly. Well, if not perhaps without end, for quite a long time. Catherine Osborne, in her seminal 1987 article, Empedocles Recycled, drew attention to how Aristotle's discussion of the Empedoclean elements at the end of GC 1.1 plainly states that they lose their properties when united in the sphere, and that they are thus genuinely born or generated from it when the cosmogonical process begins again. She also quotes the even plainer statement in Philoponus' commentary then Empedocles, quote, says, when love dominates, all things become one and produce the sphere which exists without quality, apoyon, since no longer is either the particular character of fire or of any of the others preserved in it, given that each of the elements has cast off its peculiar form, to oikeon edos. Philoponus continues, quote, so it is clear that he posits that the differences that give the elements their forms can be removed. Then on Aristotle's statement later in the chapter that fire, earth, and water did not still exist when the universe was one, Philoponus comments, quote, when he says the universe was one, that is, the sphere, 
neither fire was in it nor any of the others in its own state, since it would have no longer been one. But it is clear that each of the elements gave up being what it was, and they all produced the single substance of the sphere. Philoponus quite plainly supposes that the Empedoclean elements do not retain their distinctive characters when they merge in the period of love's total influence to form the cosmic sphere, which he understands to be an absolute unity or fusion in which all differentiation has disappeared. And he consequently supposes that the roots or elements are once again generated from the sphere as the next cosmogonical phase begins. The main stretch of the GC on which Philoponus is commenting is translated on the handout, that's I think on the last page. Virtually every idea Aristotle ascribes to Empedocles in this passage finds confirmation in the fragments, particularly in B21, which is also on the handout. And I have to say, this is one thing that makes this um, uh, particular testimony of Aristotle's, what makes it valuable, because Aristotle does two things with Empedocles in the GC, broadly speaking. He does some reporting and he does some speculative reconstruction. Um, uh, I won't go into this at any length, but I think the, the idea that Empedocles has a particle theory is based largely on some of that speculative reconstruction, but this is a more valuable piece of evidence. It's uh, thus unfortunate that uh, it doesn't appear in decay. I think it's in Dioscorus. In any case, Aristotle clearly supposes that the roots lose their qualities not only in the sphere under love, but also to some extent whenever they combine to form specific compounds during the cosmological phase. He thinks that the qualities that distinguish the Empedoclean roots from one another are not permanent but acquired features that can as such also be lost and he thinks that the elements are therefore generated and subject to continual transformations. In all this, he seems to be merely explicating and elaborating what he could read for himself in B21, where Empedocles describes the effect of strife and love as follows. Verses 7 to 8, And in rancor they are endowed with various forms, diamorpha and all separate, while in love they come together and are desired by each other. The effect of strife is twofold, to distinguish the roots from one another with respect to their form or appearance, and to separate them from one another locally. Aristotle focuses on the first effect when he speaks of water and earth being generated from the one, that is the sphere, by a process of qualitative differentiation. Strife is responsible for the roots being diamorpha in virtue of possessing the different attributes described as defining them in verses 3 to 6. Love's effect should accordingly be to cause the roots to lose their qualitative differences. The description in verse 8 of love's correspondingly twofold effect on the elements of combination and inspiring their mutual desire may already seem to imply as much. For it's tempting to understand the description of the root's desire for one another in terms of an impulse to become like one another, whether by actually taking on each other's qualities or by coming to share with one another in other qualities. Aristotle, at any rate, plainly speaks of the elements as changing their qualities, not only when they're generated from the one in the cosmic sphere, but whenever they combine to form compounds. In so doing, they undergo the mutual interchange that Aristotle takes to imply that the elements come to be from one another. 
The last two verses of B21 are perhaps the most important for establishing the general prevalence of elemental change. Alta gar est in tauta dialelon de theonta gignatai aloi opa ta gar diacresis amebe. For these things themselves are, but running through each other, they become altered in their aspect, for mixture changes them. These verses almost certainly underline Aristotle's indication that the elements lose their distinct identities as fire, water, air, and earth whenever they come together to form compounds. There are textual difficulties at the end of verse 14, and his edition of Simplicius's physics commentary Deals proposed toss on the acrosis, so much does mixture change them, which entered the fragmenta de Socratica as toss on and has since been accepted by numerous editors and commentators. This conjecture appears to provide support for the common view that mixture alters the elements only in a limited and superficial manner, that is, with respect to their countenance or surface appearance, in keeping what, with what alloy opin could already seem to imply. <coughs> Notice, however, that such a reading involves attributing to Empedocles a distinction between primary and secondary qualities that there's no other indication he drew. But the elements are supposed to retain their defining qualitative distinctions within compounds while somehow manifesting different qualities at the phenomenal level due to their combination. This type of reading has gone hand in hand with the attributions to Empedocles of a particle theory of material structure for which there is a similar lack of evidence in the fragments. On the alternative I'm proposing, the roots genuinely interact with one another and thus to some extent lose their distinctive qualities when love causes them to combine with one another. Absent evidence of an Empedoclean distinction between primary and secondary qualities it's natural to suppose that the roots are actually affected by one another when they combine and interact, so that they lose to some extent the qualitative identities they came to have when distinguished and separated from one another by strife. The effect of love on the elements um, is to counteract or reverse the effect of strife by causing them to unite in such a way that they are genuinely affected by and come to be like one another. This is the reversal of becoming diamorpha. And Pentacles expresses this idea in a straightforward manner when he declares here at the end of fragment 21, running through one another, they come to be of altered aspect. They come to be of altered aspect for mixture changes them. The nature of this change is perhaps expressed most clearly in B8, though misinterpretation by Aristotle complicates matters. Plutarch's versus Collodum preserves this fragment's four verses in their entirety, while Aristotle in GC 1.1 selectively quotes the words Fusis udinos esten hapantom alamono mixis to dialexis to megentom. He quotes this, these words from the fragment in support of his general contention that those of his predecessors who posited a single material principle understood generation and destruction in terms of alteration, while those who posited a plurality of material principles must have considered generation and destruction uh, to be something other than alteration. Aristotle thus influentially, though erroneously, maintains that Empedocles conceived of generation and destruction in terms of mixture and separation, and quotes these words to support this contention. That's where the uh, mistake is, is the quoting these words. While the term mixis 
of course, denotes mixture, Aristotle's construal of dialexis as separation is problematic. Uh, he seems to think it's something like a synonym of dialysis. The term dialexis, however, like a fair proportion of Empedocles' vocabulary, is uncommon. The verb from which it is formed, dialoso, has the sense of give and take and exchange, or simply exchange, interchange, or even in some contexts, change from enmity to friendship, or reconcile with one another. It never has the sense of separate. The more common substantive, dialogue has the senses of interchange or reconciliation. One would expect from the cognate verb, it never means separation. And it's hard to see why the less common dialexis should have such a sense. Empedocles himself, most significantly, twice uses the verb dialoso in context where he's normally understood as describing the interchange of the elements. This is at Fusica 1, 243, and at B35, verse 15. Note also that Empedocles has a verb for the separation of the elements, apocrino, which one sees him employing in B9. Understanding Mixus's companion term dialexis in B8 as indicating an interchange among the things mixed rather than their separation clearly makes better sense in the full context of the fragment. The plural pronoun tois in verse 4 clearly refers to both mixus and dialexis, but Empedocles' point can hardly be that humans normally speak of what he himself identifies as the element separation as birth or generation. Only when mixus and dialexis are understood as referring respectively to the mixture of and interchange among what is mixed does it make sense for Empedocles to say that these are what people normally speak of as phusis. Thus, while the subsequent tradition of commentary, both ancient and modern, is tended to follow Aristotle's lead in misunderstanding mixus and dialexis here as mixture and separation, Empedocles himself appears actually to have meant to identify the mixture and interchange of what is mixed as the underlying processes involved in what people normally speak of as birth or generation. Correctly understanding mixus and dialexis in B8 as mixture and interchange suggests that Empedocles conceived of elemental mixture as producing a reciprocal interaction in which the roots as they mix are qualitatively affected by one another in an interactive interchange that produces compounds with new qualities of their own. There's no good reason or need to suppose elements should not be thought of as somehow there's no excuse me, there's no good reason or need to suppose that elements should be thought of as somehow retaining their defining qualities at some deeper level within these compounds. Empedocles extrapolates from his belief in metempsychosis to the principle that no mortal thing is either born from or passes away into total nothingness. This principle applies not only to persons, animals, and plants, but to the gods themselves among whom are to be counted fire, water, air, and earth. But the fact that the elements are never generated from nothing or destroyed into nothing does not entail that they must be altogether immutable or that they retain their individuating qualitative identities when they combine to generate compounds. Empedocles appears to suppose just the opposite. Empedoclean roots 
thus have their own life cycles and undergo their own transformations like virtually everything else in his system. Emphasis on virtually, right? Fusica 1, 232-44 form a unified block of text in which Empedocles presents several key principles of his physical theory. The new beginning made thereafter suggests that he is here presenting these ideas for the first time in the poem. The addressee is urged to focus on what he is being told so that he may understand what the speaker recognizes may be difficult for him to grasp. Instruction, the speaker says, will increase the addressee's understanding and this instruction takes the form of some recapitulation and clarification. Verses at the beginning of the fragment are then repeated verbatim. That's uh, 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 Physical 1, 247-8 to 8, repeated, repeating uh, 232-3. The repetition mitigates the loss of what preceded the beginning of the fragment by following with a verse which identifies the subjects of the verbs oxefe and diafu as the elemental roots, fire, water, earth, and air. One might suppose that the subsequent two verses, 50 to 51, continue the list so that strife and love are to be counted among the verb subjects, but the phrase, phrases dikaton and intoisen, which mark the relations in which strife and love stand with respect to the elements, should be sufficient indicators that they have a different status. Love and strife are referenced here not as subject to the combination and separation to which fire, water, earth, and air are subject, but instead as the causal principles governing their combination and separation. There's so much strange mention here evidently serves as a transition to the so-called hymn to love in the next block of text. So what exactly then are the processes being described in the fragment's opening two verses? A double story I shall tell, for at one time they, that is the elemental roots, grew to be one only from many, while at one time they, that is the elemental roots, grew apart again to be many from one. The question that immediately presents itself is whether the process, processes here described are macrocosmic or microcosmic. That is to say, are these verses describing the specific events of the ultimate formation of the perfect unity of the cosmic sphere under the rule of love, and its subsequent differentiation, and the reemergence of the elements when strife asserts its influence anew, or are they less specifically describing the processes involved in the formation and destruction of individual compounds? The question arises because Empedocles has a general theory of the formation and dis dissolution of compounds that applies in all cases. The unified sphere under the total rule of love is itself a compound, the ultimate compound, one might say, and as such is formed according to the principles of change that govern the formation of any and all compounds. As we've seen, it can be difficult in some places to determine with confidence whether Empedocles is speaking of the constitution and dissolution of the cosmic sphere or individual compounds. It can even seem fond of exploiting the ambiguity created by his intuition that the same principles and processes are at play at the macrocosmic and microcosmic levels. But in this location, his use of the temporal adverbs tota, tota, and of the aorists exefe and diafu may make us reasonably sure that he's describing the major moments of macrocosmic change. Furthermore, when he says that the elements grew to be one only, hen monon from many, this is in fact what he means, and not that they somehow retained their individual identities and remain many 
while assuming the appearance of a unity at some phenomenal level. If these first two verses do in fact refer to the unification of the roots in forming the cosmic sphere and to their differentiation at its dissolution, it would be natural enough to suppose that the verses immediately following, in which Empedocles describes a double genesis and double apolapsis, have the same reference were it not for the specification of these as the generations and passings away of mortal things. Natom. I shall therefore take it that Empedocles is in fact describing in these difficult verses the processes involved in the generation and passing away of specimen mortal compounds. If this is the case, then the initial indication of the intention to tell a double story marks the parallelism between the processes operative at the macrocosmic level in the generation and growing apart of the cosmic sphere and those operative in the generation and passing away of microcosmic compounds. It's altogether apt to mark the parallelism, for in both cases the same components, the elemental roots, are acted upon by the same forces, love and strife, in much the same way. Since we have already noted the reasons for admitting that fire, water, earth, and air do not persist as such within the cosmic sphere under the rule of love, but rather lose their individual identities in the undifferentiated unity she achieves, we might well expect that the same happens in the microcosmic level of specimen mortal compounds. So now I want to show in detail how allowing for this possibility enables one to understand Physical 1, 234 to 6. Doe de Snaiton Genesis, Doe da Sunodos Ticte te Olecate, Heda Palin de Fuomenon Threptesa Hey, twofold is the generation of mortal things, twofold they're passing away. For the one, the coming together of everything engenders and destroys, whereas the other, as they again grow apart, theretofore nurtured, flies away. These verses offer a general description of what is involved in the formation and dissolution of specimen compounds. The formation of a compound and its destruction and each be considered with a focus either on the compound itself or on its constitutive elements. The formation of a compound simultaneously involves both its generation, obviously, but also the passing away into it of the elements from which it is composed. These are not, in fact, different processes, of course. The generation of a compound from its constitutive elements and the passing away into it of the elements from which it is generated are the same processes considered respectively from the perspective of the compound and from the perspective of the elements. Call this Empedocles' dual theory of generation. In the same way, the destruction of a compound simultaneously involves both its destruction, obviously, but also the generation out of it of the elements from which it is composed. But these are not actually different processes, but merely aspects of a single process. Call the view that the passing away of the compound and the generation of elements from its destruction are one and the same process, Empedocles' dual theory of destruction. That such is the upshot of these verses, one can see clearly enough, despite the textual problems in verse 236, and their overall compression of thought and complexity of the syntax. Since these verses have been so challenging to interpreters, how will he here be rather painstaking in unpacking their syntax and sense. The normal rule for the use of the article without a substantive as a relative pronoun with the particles men and death 
is that homen refers to the former of two items and hodet to the latter. In rarer instances, however, homen refers to the latter or nearer of two items and hodet to the former or more remote. The reference here of men and Hede are most obviously Genesis and Apolepsis, which refers to which will become clear once we try to understand how the Genesis or possibly Apolepsis of mortal things can be the object of the verbs Tikte and Oleke in verse 235, and likewise how their Apolepsis or possibly Genesis can be the subject of the verb Diepte in verse 236 and modified by the participle Thesa. So let's first consider how to expand the compact sense of the two verses on the syntactically more common possibility that Tainmen refers to Genesis and Hedet refers to Apolepsis. It's easy enough to understand how the coming together of all things engenders the genesis of mortal things. There's a minor complication introduced by the way the subject and the object are both pluralized, for it means that we are not in fact dealing with the restricted case of the generation of an individual compound, but the multiple cases of such generations of mortal things as the elemental roots variously combine. We may still speak, for simplicity's sake, of what happens in each individual case. In the first place, then, the coming together of the elements engenders the genesis of the Xunodos Panton Ticte, a genesis of theta, engenders the genesis of, or more simply, produces a mortal thing, but this coming together of elements also destroys the genesis of mortal things. This part of the clause refers, I take it, to the passing away into the compound of its constitutive elements as it is formed. The mortal things in this instance are elements that previously had their own genesis as they emerged or re-emerged from some compound, a genesis which is now destroyed as these elements themselves perish into the compound. Thus verse 235 is an articulation of what I referred to above as Empedocles' dual theory of generation. Does verse 236 then articulate his dual theory of destruction? Apparently so, though the uncertainty regarding the verse's last two words makes it hard to be entirely confident about the interpretation. The phrase pollen diafuomenon, as they again grow apart, marks the process being described as the reversal of the ponton sonodos, the coming together of all things, that's the subject of the previous verse. It does seem, therefore, that Empedocles is here talking about the destruction of compounds. If Hede kicks up apolepsis, then the passing away that had theretofore been nurtured is that of the elements into the compound during its formation. One of the attractions of Panzerbeiter's emendation Dreptesa, or manuscript Dreptesa, is the way it plays off of Tikte in the previous verse. Scaliger's Diepte for manuscript Drepte is perhaps more uncertain, but it appears similarly to play off of Oleke. Empedocles' desire for the verbs to correspond in this way may partially account for the awkwardness of the expression in verse 236, given how it requires that the apolepsis that balances the genesis must suffer its own engendering and destruction. Still, the notion of a passing away itself being engendered or nurtured and eventually being destroyed 
or flying away as the elements reemerge from the compound is not so very strange. <coughs> Given that the thought can be so unpacked in this relatively straightforward way by construing the references of Tainman and Haida in this syntactically typical fashion, it might seem that we need not bother with the possibility that Tainman refers to Apolepsis and Haida to Genesis. Still, I want to consider it very quickly here just to confirm that the present reading makes more sense. It's easy enough to think of the coming together of the elements as engendering and or producing a passing away if the elements themselves pass away into the compounds formed from them. But what passing away could the elements coming together in a compound be thought to destroy? Certainly not that of whatever compound or more likely compounds from which they previously emerged, for compounds are not regenerated in the same way elements are. This, this problem is sufficient to scuttle this alternative possibility and points to a significant difference between elements and compounds an Empedocles system to which we shall return. Now, One might worry about the characterization of the generation of elements from the destruction of a compound as a genesis of mortal things. Any such worry should be allayed, however, by consideration of how in B35, 14-17, he describes the roots as they first begin to combine when love reasserts or influence after strife's maximal separation. Then at once those which had previously learned to be immortal grew to be mortal, and things previously pure were blended as their paths interchanged. And as they were mixing countless tribes of mortals poured forth, fitted with all manner of appearances, a wonder of cute. Behold, the continuing sequence of elemental birth and death is what Empedocles now proceeds to describe in the remainder of this block of text before making a new beginning in verse 245. These eight verses comprise three sentences, each of which is made more intelligible by the interpretation of the preceding verses developed thus far. Physical 1, 237-9. And these, fire, water, earth, and air, never leave off their continual alteration, sometimes all combining into one by a love, and sometimes again each differentiated by a strife's enmity. The present participles and the other indications that the alterations of the elements here described are ongoing and repeated processes signal that the formations and dissolutions in question are those of local compounds rather than the formation and dissolution of the cosmic sphere. These verses should be compared to the first seven verses of B26 since the pair of verses at Physical 1, 238 to 9 are nearly repl replicated in 26, 5 to 6 and since the remainder of B26 nearly replicates the verses that follow in our block of text. The first four verses of B26 mirror the thoughts of Physica 1, 234-7, with a more particular focus on what happens to the elemental roots as they cycle in and out of the countless creatures formed from their combinations. They thus tend to confirm that the combination and differentiation described in Physica 1, 238-9 um, are those of local compounds. B26 Verse 7, however, with its aorist verb and the use of topon in apposition with sumpunta, appears to describe a discrete event of greater magnitude, which is most naturally understood as a reference to the eventual reconstitution of the undifferentiated cosmic sphere under the total influence of love. Wright, in her commentary, properly rejects understanding topon as either an adverb or the subject of genetai. Though like others, she errs in understanding Kupenerthe as suggesting that the elements retain their distinct characters during this phase of the cycle. 
The roots are underneath, she says, because they are not separate in dominant masses, but are in such a mixing of discrete particles that none of their characteristics is visibly distinct. There's both the particle theory and the primary and secondary properties uh, uh, assumption or, or uh, imputation. Those who believe that the Empedoclean elements remain essentially unchanged as they come together to form other things suppose there is support for their view in the phrase alta gar est in tauta here at B26.3. Wright translates, for these are the only real things. Similarly, Friedrich Solzhen, elements alone are truly real. The phrase also occurs at Physical 1.265 and B21.13-14. I've already commented on how in B21 one finds alongside the assertion that these things themselves are the assertion that mixture changes the elements. The apparent contradiction there between the assertion of the elements reality or permanence and the simultaneous characterization of them as undergoing changes as they combine with each other, one likewise sees in uh, B26. There, the phrase alta gar est in tauta follows immediately upon a description of the elements as successively perishing or waning into one another and waxing or growing strong. Likewise, after Physical 1, 265 to 6, there follows a verse characterizing the elements uh, simultaneously as becoming different and as always ever the same. Fortunately, Empedocles himself tells us quite clearly how to resolve these ostensible contradictions which he seems to enjoy employing for their striking effect. The resolution offered by Empedocles has nothing to do, of course, with the particle theory of material structure or a distinction between two levels of elemental properties adduced in service of the view that the elements suffer no essential change in forming compounds. Instead, Empedocles' resolution involves specifying the distinct respects in which the elements change and are unchanging. Empedocles draws the relevant distinctions as clearly as one might hope for in the verses that conclude our block of text and that recur B26, 8 to 12. Thus, insofar as, hey, they have learned to grow one, to be one from many, and again spring forth as many when one grows apart, in this respect they come to thee, and their life is not continual. How could Empedocles have said more clearly that fire, water, earth, and air are not ungenerated and internal, but instead come to thee and do not live on continuously? It makes it clear enough, moreover, that they are generated and cease to live as they successively emerge from and again perish into the compounds formed from them. All this is perfectly consistent with the indications elsewhere that love causes the elements to lose their distinct identities as they combine to form compounds. But insofar as, hey, they never leave off their continual alteration, in this respect, hey, they are ever changeless in the cycle. These words provide the necessary specification of how fire, water, earth, and air, despite losing their identities as they combine to form compounds and regaining them when generated upon their dissolution, are more ontologically basic within Empedocles' physical system than the compounds formed from them. Although both fire, water, earth, and air, and their compounds all experience generation and destruction, fire, water, earth, and air, unlike their compounds, will regain the identities lost when they perish in the formation of compounds. Their propensity to eventual rebirth or regeneration makes their life cycles very different from those of their compounds. 
Whereas Empedocles, for example, was reborn as youth, maiden, bush, and bird before his current incarnation as poet, seer, and healer, and his anticipated reincarnation as a god, after their deaths upon losing their identities in compounds, fire, water, earth, and air are regenerated once again as what they previously were, that is, as fire, water, earth, and air. This is the manner of persistence Empedocles appears to have in mind when he specifies the respect in which the roots are changeless. We may follow his cue in calling it the persistence of continual alteration, providing that it's understood that this continual alteration involves their continual regeneration. This manner of persistence is central to the elemental status of fire, water, earth, and air in Empedocles' physical system, for it's sufficient to make them more ontologically basic than almost all other entities. There is no need for them to be ungenerated, imperishable, and qualitatively immutable, and Empedocles fairly clearly does not envision them as such. It should be noted that in addition to their persistence of continual alteration, Empedocles apparently regards the roots as together comprising the fixed and total quantity of stuff in the cosmos. This is also part of what Empedocles means when he says alt estentalta as the verses preceding the deployment of this phrase at Frisco 1.265 make clear. One must look elsewhere then to the roots to find ungenerated and imperishable entities in Empedocles. One must look most obviously to love and strife themselves since nowhere is there any indication that these powers are ever in any way generated or destroyed. On the contrary, Empedocles says of them quite explicitly, they are as they were before and will be and never, I think, will endless time be emptied of these two. Nowhere in the fragments does Empedocles come close to describing eternity in so plain a fashion to fire, water, earth, and air. Even they cannot be regarded as altogether immutable, however, for they apparently function, this is love and strife, as the agents of combinations and differentiations, well, I don't know about that anymore, um, experienced by fire, water, earth, and air. Nevertheless, their freedom from generation and destruction gives love and strife a different status in Empedocles' system than the roots. The difference corresponds roughly to the distinction between elements and principles we find attributed to the Stoics and Diogenes Laertius. Quote, they say that there is a difference between principles and elements. The former are ungenerated and indestructible, whereas the elements pass away at the conflagration. The principles are also bodies and without form, but the, but the elements are endowed with form. According to this distinction, or some similar distinction, Empedoclean love and strife would be regarded as principles, while fire, water, earth, and air would be regarded merely as elements because they're subject to generation and destruction, not only at the reconstitution of the cosmic sphere under love's absolute sway, but also in the formation of local compounds. The question of the connections between Stoic and Empedoclean physical theory is an intriguing one. One can see how love corresponds in certain respects to the craftsman-like reason that is the Stoic active principle and how Empedocles' conception of elemental interaction anticipates features of the Stoic theory of crosses or blending. Of course, this is not the time to go into <laughs> that, and I don't even have time to go into the last little passage on uh, the handout, which I think we can make a little bit better sense of now, um, given this allowance for elemental change. So I'll just stop there. Thank you very much.